Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. to talk about the church a little bit more uh, we wanted to talk a bit about how to deal with or how to survive church as it is currently or how it functions today and also to ask you how do you think that you can be radical within a congregation or a church organization that is um, supposedly unpolitical and functions in this way as i said earlier i wasn't raised in a churchly tradition so perhaps that makes me less intrinsically respectful of church institutions. But on the other hand, it makes me more curious about them because I don't have any sort of intrinsic childhood loyalty. In our in our movement, we have a saying about how to survive church. And, and the saying is, keep a foot in the church and a foot in the streets and keep your weight on the foot that is in the streets. And what we mean by that is that it is important at every point to engage institutional churches, in part because they um, fancy themselves to be the stewards of the tradition. And we have to engage in, in vigorous conversation with, with these institutions because they exist and, and also because they're often the ones that give Christianity a bad name. So sometimes the churches are working for us and sometimes the churches are working against us from our perspective of what we're trying to accomplish. So that's keeping a foot in the church is important. There's another reason why keeping a foot in the church, in the institutional church, is important. And that is, let's face it, any uh, any community that becomes institutionalized over a period of time, including our own, are going to end up with institutional issues. And so we ourselves are not immune to the same issues that inflict institutional churches. We have power struggles. We have betrayals. We have resources that we don't use wisely. We have um, senses of entitlement. All of our little social movements have all the issues that institutional churches have because we're human. So it's important that we don't imagine that just because we're not an institutional church or denomination or state church, that therefore we don't have the kinds of issues of faithfulness. But having said all that, it's important to always keep a foot outside of the institutional church, which is to say to not allow the institutional church to determine the horizons of our imagination about what is possible and what is necessary. And so in that sense, we're always in the church both as, as, a, as the loyal opposition, as it's sometimes called. That is, we care about church, but we're also going to stand up and stand against things in church. And in that sense, when a church, when our experience of church, and by this I mean either a local congregation or the state church apparatus, independent church um, denomination, of which there are some in Sweden, when we perceive that these institutions are doing the wrong thing, then we organize in the same way we would organize in society. We advocate, we educate, we activate, and we animate. That is, we try to mobilize people to do the right thing. 
in the same way that we do in society. So in that sense, the church is just another arena of organizing and struggle. Dorothy Day, great Christian anarchist, uh, used the phrase, we struggle to build a new world in the shell of the old. Uh, well, that's very much how I view my work with churches. And I do a lot of work with churches. I do retreats for pastors. I do work with denominational heads. I work with congregations. I, I work with leadership. And always it's about not trying to prop up the old institution so it survives at any cost, but rather to build a new world in the shell of the old, to go to the roots of what it means to be church. So that's why it, it is important to remain engaged with church. But I also think it's important to keep keep that weight on the foot outside church so that a given congregation or a given denomination doesn't restrict our imagination of what we can possibly do. And that's why most of my adult life I've been involved in helping start or sustain small alternative Christian communities who are, who are trying to live out uh, the discipleship call in a way that is a little freer and more unconstrained. It's, in fact, institutional churches are much more threatened by demonstration projects on the outside than they are by loyal critics on the inside. Um, so if you are, have a community house down the street that's publicly identifying as Christian and is worshiping and maybe worshiping with the local congregation but living it out day to day, that's a challenge to people who come to church as spectators, people who come to church just for religious entertainment. The fact that you are there saying, no, there's more, can be a threat, but I think it's a very useful threat because it can animate people in the churches to become more true to their uh, vocation. So, you know, you, you use the verb to survive church, and I, I understand that because sometimes it seems like we're just trying to survive bad Christianity. But ultimately, we want to do more than survive, right? We want to renew. We want to actually experience the fullness of communal Christian life and covenant. We want to be church. So we oftentimes talk about our work as taking place at the intersection of the seminary, the sanctuary, the street, and the soil. And what we mean by that is we want to take the best of critical theological reflection, the seminary. We want to take the best of Christian worship and congregational life, the sanctuary. Uh, we want to take the best of the activist orientation, the streets. And we want to take the best of the earth, the soil, and integrate that into a new way of being church. Because it's, it's exactly the gulf between the sanctuary and the street that is the problem. It's the gulf between the seminary and the street that is the problem. It is the gulf between the sanctuary and the soil, the life of, of the earth, that is the problem. So ultimately, we don't want to just survive the mundane, irrelevant congregational life. We want to renew it. We want to engage it. And sometimes that will mean working with a local congregation that's open to the streams of renewal. And sometimes it will mean starting our own thing as a, as a sort of a, a demonstration project of what is alternative. So keep a foot in the church and a foot in the street, but keep your weight on the foot that's in the street. Connecting to that and connecting to the idea of uh, building a new society in the shell, shell of the old, I think what you said is really, really useful, uh, but it also sort of connects to, to one issue that I sort of struggle with. As an unapologetic anarchist, uh, as well as an unapologetic Christian, I think the Christian framework works very well for resistance, but not so well for revolution. Like if you 
actually strive to change society uh, into not just a better version of itself, but into a better society at large? Does that work with your understanding of a Christian faith? Well, yeah, I mean, I think Christians actually have a better track record historically at fomenting revolution than anarchists do in the sense of in the sense of uh, revolution that actually overthrows existing social structures now um, all of the all of the examples we might look at are partial and problematic but Christians have have all been very much involved from the Nicaraguan revolution to the Cuban revolution all the way back but I do I do think that you know the, the the old ideal of the socialist revolution of just trying to make build a society in which it's easier to be human uh, which I think could also be an anarchist uh, slogan if we think about it you know that that is uh, that, that is a goal that that we would share at the same time that I think the Christians have an advantage because the Christians are always working on a dual project right we're, we're working on on uh, trying to resist dominant culture and foment a sort of a humanizing social revolution. But we're also working on the project of doing that work among ourselves regardless of what happens with the state. And it's that double attention, um, that discipline of the personal and the political, of the communal and the political, that I think actually positions Christians to be more reliable in the long run because we're not going to we're not going to stop working to humanize what it means to live together if the revolution fails we will continue on the local demonstration projects even as we work on the big structures and uh those who are waiting for the powers to come toppling down before they actually change their habits, I think are, at the end of the day, less reliable than those who say, we're going to embody among ourselves the values that we're fighting for publicly. I think that tends to be a little bit more reliable of a, of a formula. So I, I, don't, I don't think, uh, Jonathan, I would necessarily agree that, that Christians are less useful when it comes to revolution. I, under, I understand uh, why you would say that. I think both the historical record and, and the nature of our double-eyed vision for social transformation, that is, we start transforming ourselves now and we work on the transformation of society as we go. I think that's a that's a very powerful formula, if Christians would only live it. Yeah, I would just come to that with some sort of critique because it's valid what you say, but the amount of Christian living in this way, being sort of peace activists or doing um, a kind of charity work so that is not charity top-down. I mean, these people, it's uh, it's not the majority of the Christians. I mean, <laughs> so is, is this the great hope or I don't know, is it not? But it has great potential and it's it's good to, to hear what you say. And it's kind of, it sounds strange when you hear it, but uh, the, great, the Christian being the best revolutionaries, it messes with the mind. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> I also think that uh, this model is something that should be the conclusion for a person thinking about how to live or practice uh, anarchism, that you embody or this this uh, saying, I don't. I think it's Gandhi uh, embodying this change you want to see. That should sort of always be the principle. When we speak of this, um, is there? We meant to ask you if uh, about personal faith. And um, in Sweden, I I don't know. Maybe this is the case in US as well. But in Sweden, we can uh, see like two uh, camps uh, within the Protestant Church. We can call it 
the high and low church, uh, Lutheran church. And uh, in Sweden, we see uh, there's a tendency for, you know, this uh, radical and peace and non-violence uh, and social aware and political theory in more of the high uh, church, uh, both uh, in the theology and in demo- demography also. Mm-hmm. But in the low low church tradition, I mean, charismatics and the Pentecostal this is not a case, and I come from a Pentecostal church, so mm. this is my upbringing and experience. How can a person um, combine like personal faith and a charismatic experience, and or uh, maybe mystical perspectives of faith uh, and a political? the radical theory differences or different camps in the church because i i have almost never met a charismatic activist or i mean i have like i know one person in sweden that's really trying to combine this but it's really unusual what can we think of this (laughs) yeah i i appreciate uh your analysis here and i i cannot speak really to the swedish context on this uh because it is different i can only speculate why it is that social justice social justice minded people tend toward high church and low church tend to be lacking social justice even though they're very robustly personal in their faith that's what i hear you saying and and we have we have some of the same uh divergence here in the states but that's also changing and I, so i suspect it's going to change in sweden as well that is, some of the uh, most energetic and creative faith-based activism in the States over the last five to ten years has actually come from the low church evangelicals who are starting finally to engage with justice issues. And so I suspect we'll be seeing more of that in, in Sweden as well. It's certainly happening in the third world. Uh, I know liberation theology is one of the questions you're interested in asking about, and uh, liberation theology in the 70, 1970s and 80s mostly was directed at mainstream churches, Catholic and Protestant, but it has, over the past 40, 50 years, made an impact on small Pentecostal communities, too. So some of the, the really vibrant social movements in places like Brazil and Argentina and Chile are happening among Pente- Pentecostals. I guess what I'd, I'd want to say, Alice, is that there's nothing intrinsic about high church or low church that makes the integration of the personal and the political easier. There's just uh, oftentimes sociology and bad theology is what gets in the way. I actually think that you, you asked about mystical experience and conversion. That does tend to be more the domain these days of the charismatic Pentecostal low church folk. But if you think about it, under capitalism, capitalism right, colonizes our minds and our spirits as well as our bodies and our communities. And it locks down our imaginations and our, our spirituality. And so it stands to reason that sometimes only a mystical experience or only an experience of radical conversion can help us break out of that straitjacket uh, under which capitalist cosmology controls our our minds and hearts now that mystical experience might be sitting in a tree to prevent old growth forest from being cutting cutting down and clear cut Uh, it might be kind of a classic nature mysticism it also might be the kind of conversion that comes when somebody really truly encounters poor people for the first time 
an experience of solidarity or experience of exposure that kind of upsets the status quo in one's mind and heart. So I think moments of conversion and mystical experiences are not only welcome, but perhaps necessary to truly seeing the world differently under under capitalism. So I would think that activist communities would be actively uh, nurturing spirituality that encourages mystical experiences, transcendent experiences, experiences that are outside of the box of the dominant society, right? Yes. The, 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 Jesus uh, had a radical immersion in the River Jordan and a wilderness experience that could only be described as mystical. Paul had a vision on the road to Damascus that can only be um, understood to be mystical. The prophets, the wilderness prophets talk about this all the way back to Moses. This kind of thing is really intrinsic to the biblical tradition and ought to be more characteristic. And if if a little Pentecostalism helps open the door to that, then I'm all for it. So so I would like to think, you know, we, we use the phrase um, when we build our, our communities, we talk about high church, low church, and no church, meaning that we're drawing from high church traditions, sometimes liturgy and symbolism. Um, we're drawing from low church traditions of non-hierarchy and kind of radical democratic spirituality. Um, and we're drawing from no church experiences, that is, folks who have just kind of Cobbled, cobbled it together apart from any uh, tradition. In the healthy spiritual ecology and social ecology of church, I think we actually need to be drawing on all of those things, just as we need to be drawing on both the Catholic and Protestant sides of that divide to uh, heal the rifts of what it means to be church. You know, we, we have a small house congregation um, that we are part of that we call Farm Church because it's actually rooted on a local CSA organic farm, um, but we we draw on Anglican liturgy and we use the high church lectionary, but we run it very much like a low church house church um, because we don't have ministers or priests, um, and and I think that's I think that's a really healthy ecology. So we we encourage folk to draw on all sorts of corners of church tradition, including ones that might not be considered to be allies um, in in their majority form. That's that's always been the case in church renewal movements. So the fact that Swedish Pentecostals aren't out in the, the streets yet, um, give it some time. Keep, yeah, uh, I hope it's calm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, I would uh, mention, though, that some of the best work being done in Sweden – that I'm aware of from a faith, from an institutional faith stance, is coming from the uh, independent churches in Sweden, and particularly Diakonia as as the sort of umbrella organization of those churches, and that that includes you know some pretty conservative evangelicals. So things can things can change, and that's where we come in mm-hmm. is to help is to help them change. <laughs> Absolutely, and. Uh, that a big ear would open to the third world. You mentioned South America. I mean, most of the influences on, maybe this is not a good comparison, but from young people, we get, uh, the most of them get all their inspiration from Bethlehem, Reading in California. And, uh, yeah. We need other, other sources yes. to further radicalize. Because we need, I th- or I think that uh, we need, the really need a faith component and the prayer to to be able to uh, do 
the work on the streets and uh, to continue it day by day and do all kinds of things to have the courage and the energy. Agreed. Uh, in planning some of our episodes, we also discussed that now it's becoming more and more clear that Christianity in Sweden is sort of a minority position and that we are sort of finding ourselves from uh, from this Christian uh, hangover being a minority among other minorities uh, in relationship to a secular uh, majority culture, and that this might be a position that is a lot more healthy for church to be in. Whether it's healthy or not is possibly a matter of debate, because it just means that there's much more space that's ceded to capitalist secularism. <laughs> However, it is an opportunity, and it, it's probably healthier for the churches that we can now rightly see that we live in a pluralistic society, that we're, we don't have Christian hegemony, so we can exercise our faith in ways that are less dominating and more redemptive. So I, I do think it's a, it's a healthy opportunity for, for Christians. Um, the question that we need to, to figure out is, you know, what is – how are we evangelizing the powers? What are we trying to build? Um, if it's not a Christian state, because we've tried that for centuries and that didn't turn out so well, then uh, then what is it? And that's that's where, frankly, Christian anarchists uh, I think have a great you know great point of view to offer to the mix and and why I think in in many respects this is this is the time for a, a Christian anarchist renaissance and I think we're seeing some uh, <clears throat> signs of that around the world. But that's going to depend on Christian anarchists being very disciplined and thoughtful in how we are narrating our faith and our politics uh, and not settling for mere sloganeering and, you know, spectacle, because I think we actually have a lot to bring to the table. Uh, we're approaching our last set of questions, and there were some really important uh, issues raised. Engaging with tradition and engaging with hierarchies from within uh, that exist within church from a political or a theological perspective. And I think also in connection to what you just were saying, uh, with the need to be thoughtful and not being stuck in sloganeering. But I think it's also important to sort of be clear that when one as a Christian anarchist says that I'm against all forms of dominance, what do I mean by all forms of dominance? Because there are issues with tradition uh, where tradition has enforced dominance and how do we relate to this and how do we relate to the dominance within church from, from clergy and church authorities? Yeah, that's... Um... That's a that's a that's a tricky issue. I, I have tried to resolve that in my own life by aligning myself with the Mennonites because that's a low church, radically democratic tradition, which by and large does not have much of a clericalist footprint. That is, there's there are Mennonite ministers, but they don't really have much um, institutional power. So that's a tradition that I could embrace without much reservation. At the same time, I find myself working very closely with priests and bishops and deacons and Methodist district superintendents. I even find myself working with a committee that's writing up some talking points for Pope Francis, who's drafting an encyclical on nonviolence. And, uh, you know, I'm not against uh, having conversation with the Pope. I just, I just think we have to be open to conversation with all comers, and we will sometimes be surprised. Uh, so recently there was a Methodist bishop here in Southern California who uh, took 
an incredibly courageous stand on behalf of undocumented immigrants uh, and was out on the streets with us. And so you just never know what can happen, the, the kinds of transformation that can happen. So, you know, part of my keeping one foot in the church and one foot on the streets is you know, aligning myself with a non-clerical tradition um, for my own practices, but remaining in conversation with institutional leadership, always inviting them uh, into the way of discipleship, whether they're a bishop or a layperson. And I, I want to emphasize that I, I do believe that it is important that we not cut ourselves off from conversation, that if we are ourselves doing our best embodying an alternative in our own demonstration projects of activism in church, then I think our the conversation is such that because we are moving rapidly into a post-Christendom era, and Sweden would be much further ahead, as is most of Europe, than the United States, but it's happening here as well, that means it's a wide-open conversation. That means there's a lot that's up for grabs, and everybody's trying to rethink, you know, what does it mean for example, to be bishop of the Statskirke, when the state church no longer really has much power. So people are asking those questions, and we can help them imagine what it, you know, what it means to, to go deeper into a post-Christendom church. Uh, so I, I just think it's very important here that anarchists don't revel in their own self-righteousness, but rather are actively engaging folks across the spectrum, because it is so wide open right now. All of the old divides between state church and independent church, between Catholic and Protestant, between high church and low church, uh, and between socially engaged church and more personalism, non-engaged church. All of those boundaries are breaking down now. And it, it's actually, um, it's a very interesting ecotone, as the ecologists would call it. It's this place where, where streams are running together and they're overflowing their boundaries and cross-fertilizing. Uh, so it's a very exciting time to try to figure out what it means to be church and Christian and why, therefore, I take a radically ecumenical approach to conversation with traditions up and down the spectrum. Because I think, you know, people, people are interested in talking with folk about their perspective in a way that 50 years ago would, would have not have been the case. Coming from just uh, this idea of having a radically ecumenical perspective, I guess you also engage with Christians who are still taking a perspective of uh, when, when it comes to issues such as equality between different genders and uh, LBGTQ uh, plus rights, for example, uh, or positions within church? Or are there some practices where you need to say that, well, I can't cooperate with someone who engages in this practice? Well, I certainly, uh, I mean, again, we all have our boundaries, right? And so we do not cooperate with people who anthropologically exclude other Christians based on their gender or their sexuality. Um, that kind of exclusion, that kind of prejudice, uh, whether it's race or class or gender or sexuality, is, is something that we would strive to non-cooperate with, and, it, and that's still very much the case with many of our churches. So we, we have a little dance that we do. For example, um, we run an institute here near our home every year, an, an annual institute, and the only place big enough to handle it is a Christian camp here locally. But when we went to uh, see about renting the grounds for this camp, we realized that their statement of faith was um, heterosexual exclusion, meaning that uh, LGBTQ folk w would not, you know, were not considered within the bounds. Well, 
many of our people come from that community and our leaders come from that community and we certainly weren't going to cooperate with with that way of defining the boundaries and so we said that to them we said look um, we we cannot sign this confession of faith and we won't sign it we still like to use your grounds we'd like for you to get to know us because we are Christian people, but not on the basis of this. So we'll do a memorandum of understanding with you that says uh, you will respect our our people, that no one will be subject to exclusion or, or to hate speech. Uh, and we, we drew up this whole MOU, which was mostly them having to flex to us to be inclusive. And to our surprise, they, they signed that MOU. We were the first group that had ever challenged them on that score. And so, you know, it's a dance. Same thing with our denominations. Even though my wife and I are Mennonites, we're part of a denomination that still is somewhat ambivalent about inclusion and uh, of, of LGBTQ folk. And, and so we continue to advocate for that in, uh, you know, in our denomination. So, yeah, one is always dancing around these, these things as long as we understand that we ourselves are not perfect and that we are always uh, journeying toward deeper liberation and deeper justice, then, then we can have a certain tolerance for working with other Christian groups and institutions that are maybe somewhere different on the spectrum. On the other side of the coin, you know, we're, we, we work with a lot of uh, young queer folk and anarchists, and we get a lot of pushback on the notion of covenantal relationships. We, we still are advocates for the notion of the covenant of marriage. We think that's an important aspect of the covenantal ethos of Christianity. And uh, we get a lot of pushback from our young people who uh, feel like that's antiquated and irrelevant. And so we, you know... We mix it up. We we try to uh, state our position and uh, oftentimes get you know criticized as as uh, old farts by our younger colleagues who are into polyamory and all the rest of it. But uh, you know we understand that in movements um, there are going to be some conflicting views, and we have to keep working on where the the boundaries of our ethics are and and, and try to transact that with folks in the best best way that we know how. So yeah, it's a it's a constant adventure. It's a very I think it's also a good perspective or an attitude to have if you want to stay vigil or vigilant. Uh, I think we have talked really much, and uh, if you want to ask us something, there is space for that. Yes, well, I I'm curious um, who your listenership is and how you all gather as Christian anarchists in Sweden. Oh yeah, so are we of our listeners? <laughs> we organize them. <laughs> We are curious, curious of our listeners. Yes, we don't care, uh, you guys. <laughs> please contact us. How do we organize, Jonathan? Yeah, there was more m- movement a few years ago, and there was a festival called Frison where there was a small Christian anarchist-ish uh, section called Virus, and some of the folks from from that group are trying to, uh, am I, and we are among them, uh, so we're trying to arrange meetings to have a discussion about these kinds of questions, how to organize, how to how to struggle on. Uh, and at the moment, we're, we're very much in the process of uh, dealing with those questions and also grappling with uh, our personal faith and also what the practical consequences of that is. And I think most of us are engaged in in different struggles locally and so there are people in this group who are active in uh, animal liberation there are people active in in different kinds of inclusion and anti-racism which are very prominent questions at the moment 
I would also make a complimentary. There is also a, a group uh, that um, exclusively, uh, they talk about uh, Christian uh, vegetarianism. How do you say it? Veganism. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and advocate a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle. Vildosnan. Uh, there will also be, uh, maybe one can mention uh, interreligious sisterhood, even though I don't know how anarchist that kind of movement is but they have very interesting uh, uh, work quite recently they have a, had a meeting with an uh, imam from copenhagen and uh, some priests i think hmm. that was really 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 interesting that that is maybe some of the things that are happening and we don't know all of all of it but um, maybe that is hmm. the the map of it hmm. and uh, our podcast as well i think uh, our podcast is is also a way to try to move beyond uh, sloganeering and try to deepen a discussion about what happens in the intersection between Christianity as a faith and anarchism as an ideology. Yeah, well, I certainly would encourage you to find ways to actually meet up face to face because I think that's that's really how movements can deepen is through that kind of interaction and not just the kind of thoughts and you know sound bites that podcasts tend to give. So I I encourage you whenever you can do that. Oh, will you can come meet us this summer in the northern part of Sweden? <laughs> awesome. So one of our listeners wanted to know, what is your next goal in life within near futures? And what projects do you have going? Well, um, my big project is to try to slow down. I'm 63 and don't uh, travel as easily as I have in the past. And I've covered a lot of ground over the last 35 years. So trying to slow down and be more uh, present to our community here in our bioregion here. That's uh, and, and to do more writing and less traveling. But the more interesting answer is that in the last uh, 10 years or so, we have been really promoting the notion that we call watershed discipleship, which is also the name of my most recent book. And what that essentially is, is an anarchist constructive proposal for how we should govern ourselves, namely on a watershed basis that is ecologically defined um, and socially understood. So if uh, your listeners are interested in that, they can go to watersheddiscipleship.org uh, or find the Watershed Discipleship book on our website, shedmyers.org. Um, that's, that's the project that I've been giving quite a bit of time to. And that has to do with my own evolution as an anarchist. When I sort of came out as a Christian anarchist in the early 90s, I found that we, we didn't have very many good constructive proposals. Um, we were better at defining what we're against than what we're for, other than in sort of broad, vague anarchist idealism. And so I've, I've been experimenting now for a while with the idea of bioregional self-determination and watershed governance as a constructive ecological and social and political program that addresses the interlocking crises that we're facing, and also an ecclesial program. So really encouraging churches to understand themselves, to understand the parish as the watershed. So that's what I've been uh, pretty deeply immersed in for the past number of years and will continue to be that book has been translated into Spanish and there's a lot of interest in Latin America around this idea so you know we always we always have a lot of projects going at once but that's a major one the other project that we are most actively involved in right now which I'm doing together with my uh, partner Elaine is working on restorative justice 
approaches to historical violation, and particularly looking at that in terms of the, uh, the layers of trauma in the American landscape because of the history of colonization and conquest, particularly for indigenous people. Uh, so, so we're working hard on uh, framing that in a way that is coherent with the watershed politic and is, is drawing on studies in intergenerational trauma and what our responsibility is as inheritors of a colonial project um, here in the United States to continue to listen to the way in which the land, the blood uh, spilled on this land continues to cry out. Um, so whether that's indigenous genocide or chattel slavery or ecological destruction, trying to look at all of that. So that's, that's a little bit of what we're um, currently involved in. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.